the mainstream news media is very excited about the latest revelations in the Mueller probe. Very excited. Very, very excited as in get a room mainstream media. It's getting embarrassing. It's like when you're watching TV with your mom and a sex scene comes on, except instead of a sex scene, it's CNN reporting on the Mueller investigation. And you can't look at your mom because of all the moaning and gasping. Never watch CNN with your mom when they're reporting on Mueller. Anyway, as you all know, Robert Mueller is the special counsel who was appointed to investigate whether Donald Trump colluded with the Russians in rigging the election so that Hillary Clinton lost. This is very important because the election wasn't rigged, collusion isn't a crime, and Hillary Clinton would have lost to a stuffed animal if it had campaigned in Pennsylvania. Still, we all know this investigation is very important because the news media keeps telling us how important it is. And when they tell us their cheeks get all red and they have those little high-pitched hitches in their breathing that makes you sorry, you watch the show with your mom. So far, Mueller has charged Michael Cohen with lying, Paul Manafort with lying, Alex Vanderswan with lying, and former uh, and Michael Flynn with lying. The news media hopes these men will now testify against President Trump because their testimony would be so trustworthy. Now, none of these charges stem from anything having to do with Russia rigging the election, which they didn't, or Trump colluding with them, with them, which wouldn't be a crime even if he had. Essentially, Mueller has spent $35 million to discover that Trump was thinking about building a building in Moscow that he didn't build, which wasn't a secret, and that he liked WikiLeaks, which he cleverly hid by announcing it in front of thousands of people at every campaign rally he held. I'm not sure why any of this has the mainstream media so excited. I just wish they'd calm down so we could watch TV with our moms again. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, All right, we are back after the Clavenless weekend. Cost us our former president, George H.W. Bush. But now a new week begins, and that means a, the latest episode of Another Kingdom is available to subscribers. This is episode nine, the penultimate episode, and it is titled Arosgo. And if you don't know who Arosgo is, then you haven't been listening and you don't know anything because you've missed one of the great stories. If you're not a subscriber, you won't be able to watch the new episode until Friday. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to dailywire.com and subscribe to watch the first and second seasons of Another Kingdom. Dailywire.com subscription is now the best deal on the Internet. You get all these shows, you get the mailbag, you get Another Kingdom. Do it. You will like it. In fact, later on, we will have the, the very star of Another Kingdom, Michael Knowles, the lovely and talented Michael Knowles, will be with us to discuss the war on Christmas uh, so you can get even another dose of Michael Knows, which has happened to several women who have complained about it over the years. Meanwhile, we want to talk about 23andMe, which is one of those wonderful services where you spit into a jar and they tell you everything about yourself. Uh, 23andMe helps you understand what your DNA can tell you about you and your family story. There's never been a better way to give the gift of genetic discovery to your parents, your siblings, your aunts, your grandparents, and everyone else on your list. I really enjoyed it. It was genuinely fun, genuinely interesting, kind of revealing, told you stuff that you you know wouldn't actually think about, and uh, really easy to do, too. I found out that I was, uh, in fact, made in the image of God, which I hadn't known. Uh, it's uh, Ancestry Composition Report gives you with 23andMe's Ancestry Composition Report. You can explore where your DNA is from out of 150-plus regions 
worldwide. Now, through Christmas, get 30% off any 23andMe kit. Order your DNA, DNA kit at 23andMe.com slash Clavin. That's the number 23andMe.com slash Clavin. That's 23andMe.com slash Clavin. You will find lots of answers to your questions like, how do you spell Clavin? That's not actually in there, but in fact, if you want to spell Clavin, it is K-L-A-V-A-N. So, Former President George Herbert Walker Bush was elevated from being a uh, racist Nazi who was literally Hitler uh, to being a great man whose grace and loveliness is a rebuke to all living Republicans who are racist Nazi and literally Hitler. Uh, He achieved this, of course, by dying, which is the one act a Republican can perform that the mainstream media approves of. And of course, you know, I don't want to talk about this too much, but we do have to note the times that the media in reporting on the death of uh, President Bush uh, it was in 94, um, th- that they just shamed themselves. The AP sent out a tweet, uh, George H.W. Bush, a patrician New Englander whose presidency soared with the coalition victory over Iraq and Kuwait, but then plummeted in the throes of a weak economy that led voters to turn him out of office after a single term has died. He was not <laughs> 94. It took him two days to class up and take that uh, tweet down. Uh, just you, you would think that when a former president dies, you might mention that he was shot down uh, in the Pacific uh, during World War II, that he oversaw the end of the Cold War, something like that. But no, none, none of that. It was just that he's, pre- you know, I, I like the fact that everybody has a personality. Everybody has some kind of way they can be uh, characterized or, you know, uh, just pigeonholed. So it's fair to say George H.W. Bush had a patrician personality. But why is that bad? I mean, with the press, it was always bad. He was always out of touch. And whereas being Mr. Spock, like uh, Obama, that was that was a good thing, theoretically. I mean, it's just it's all in the way you look at it. Anyway, they did all the they brought back all the old mythologies. The uh, the fact that uh, this total mythological story that was in The New York Times back in the day when he was president, that he didn't know what a scanner was in a supermarket. And that was supposed to show just how patrician and out of touch it was sent in by a New York Times reporter who wasn't even in at the scene at the time. Uh, it was never true. And of course, the Willie Horton ad, that is the big one. I mean, this this is, you know, the Willie Horton ad was an ad he ran against Michael Dukakis. When he beat Dukakis, he pointed out Wait, wait, he didn't. The ad did. The ad pointed out that Dukakis had released a guy on a program and he had gone out and committed murder. And the picture of the guy, Willie Horton, he was black. So, of course, immediately the left said, well, this is a dog whistle. So they're still doing this. Here's the thing you need to know before I just play a little bit of of the press now still reporting on this. It wasn't the Bush campaign that put the ad out. When the Bush campaign mentioned this, they didn't use a picture of Willie Horton. And it was only the left who thought about the fact that he was black. The fact was he was a murderer. That was the big deal. Do we have this uh, piece of little montage of the press um, talking about this? Yeah, play that. This is also a president whose campaign, you know, included the Willie Horton ad, the most famous dog whistle ad, you know, until this this cycle. Bush and his allies made up the ground by attacking Dukakis as too liberal. Soft on defense, they said, and soft on crime. His revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. The strategy worked. In the end, Dukakis lost 40 states and Bush was president. Do you think that the Willie Horton ad against Michael Dukakis ushered in a, a new era? Because while that is still a bad ad, uh, when you look at it now, it seems tame compared to what kind of ads are on the air 
every two years. It seems tame now, but that was something that hinted at racial animosity. It was certainly by no means uh, George Bush's best moment in later years. He was not proud of it. The best he could say was, I make a differentiation between campaigning mm -hmm. and governing. I, I mean, this is so offensive because there's no one there. There's no one in the media to turn around and say, wait, let's go back to the assumption that this is a racist ad. Never mind the fact that the Bush campaign didn't even put the ad out. They never ran the ad. It was a third party that did it. And then Bush had a, mentioned this incident but didn't put the picture of the guy up there. But the entire premise that if you show a black criminal, it is anti-black uh, is absurd. It's like the premise that if you uh, criticize George Soros, you're anti-Semitic, or you criticize Barack Obama, you're anti-black. That's a ridiculous premise. But there's no one in the media to turn to anyone else in the media and say, you know what? Our entire premise is a left-wing premise, and it's nonsense. I have a couple of things I want to say about uh, George Bush. First of all, I think it's worth noticing, noting that he was the last president uh, from the greatest generation. Uh, he was a wartime guy who had fought in World War II. He was a pilot of a, he was the youngest pilot, I believe, of a bomber in the Navy, a Navy pilot. If you want to read about his ordeal, uh, read Flyboys by James Bradley, which is a wonderful book. Uh, during the battles in the islands, these horrible battles when they were trying to dislodge the Japanese, uh, he, he f did a bombing raid over Chichijima, which was, you know, Iwo Jima was part of that uh, island chain. And he hit the target, but then took flak and went down. Uh, other part, members of his crew were killed. He was paddling out there in a raft for four hours while other uh, pilots were taken by the Japanese, killed, and then cannibalized. The Japanese enjoyed eating parts of uh, their victims. And, uh, and Bush was fortunate enough to be rescued by a submarine and other planes flew around him to protect him. Uh, he was a genuine war hero, and he won the Distinguished Flying Cross, I believe it was. And, you know, he was a man of character. I mean, this is the, this is the thing I, I just want to get to because I'm going to have some criticisms about th some of the things he did. But I want to mention that, that his character was really something. I mean, he had served uh, his country. He had been a businessman, uh, an oil man. He became head of the CIA, a congressman. He was all kinds of things. Finally, vice president and a loyal vice president to Ronald Reagan, whom he didn't really sympathize with or agree with. But he always said that Reagan was very good to him and he was very loyal to him. I just want to play this one cut because Dana Carvey was the Saturday Night Live guy who did the imitation of him. So, so Bush invited Carvey to his Christmas uh, press conference and and was, was friendly toward this guy who had been mocking him all this time, which I just think uh, kind of shows you it was a different time and that he was a man of that kind of character who could laugh at himself. Play that. The way to do the president is to start out with Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. <laughs> then you add a little John Wayne. Here we go. Let's go over the ridge. You put them together. You got George Herbert Walker Bush. Dana's given me a lot of laughs. Uh, he said to me on the phone, you sure you really want me to come there? And I said, yeah. And... Uh, he said, I hope I've never crossed the line. And I knew exactly what he meant. And as far as I'm concerned, he never has. And uh, the fact that we can uh, laugh at each other is a very fundamental thing. I'm not sure on November, uh, November 4th that the invitation would have gone out and been had <laughs> the same enthusiasm. But we're shifting gears. And I think he's given us a wonderful kickoff to what I hope will be a joyous, a totally friendly, very happy, somewhat nostalgic, uh, but uh, Merry Christmas for everybody. 
So, you know, you can say, and you would be right, that Donald Trump would never have that kind of grace to somebody who had criticized him. But you also have to say that the people making fun of Trump and who have been making fun of George W. Bush and making fun of Mitt Romney uh, didn't have that grace either. Their, their humor was a lot meaner uh, and went more, even more one-sided than SNL has been all these years and comedy has been all these years. Back in those days, they actually told jokes about the Democrats as well, which no longer happens. But the thing is, after... George Bush came Clinton, his son, George W. Bush. He's the only president besides John Adams, whose son became president. Uh, Obama and now Trump, which I, I think you can say the character, it was not the same. Of, of those men, I think only George W. Bush had a really good character, a character that one could admire. And uh, George W. Bush became better in office and he had gone through a period where he was not such a great character. But the thing is, these were not people who had faced the challenges that the greatest generation faced. I mean, after all, a, ch a generation is defined not because its people are any better than anybody else. It's defined by its challenges and the things that happened to it and what, what, how it's shaped by the way it meets those challenges. The challenges of our generation, my generation, and I, as I frequently say, I wish the boomer generation could die without taking me with it. But I think the... Um, the challenges of our generation were the challenges of prosperity, the challenges of the success that the greatest generation won for us. And those are the times, that's the time when nations decay. That's when nations decay at their pinnacle of success. If you look at the Republic of Rome, it was after they beat Carthage, after they rose to a pinnacle of success that they rapidly, I mean, with dizzying speed, descended into civil war and violence and ultimately the Republic fell. But, so I just I'm going to want to talk about that death spiral and how it kind of comes out of George, uh, a after George H.W. Bush uh, in just a second. But first, it is your last week to get the Genesel Sunspot Corrector for free. This is for sunspots, age spots, even red inflamed patches. This could be yours for free with the purchase of Genesel. The, the brand new Genesel Sunspot Corrector boasts outstanding reviews. People love it. They put it on. It makes the sunspots, it dims them, makes them uh, harder to see, uh, makes obviously your skin look younger. And this is the last week you can get this sunspot miracle free. Time is running out to take advantage of the offer. Watch your sunspots vanish and your bags and puffiness gone. It actually absorbs the water in the pouches under your eyes and uh, re reduces them. For results in as little as 12 hours, the GenuCell Immediate Effects is also yours free. Text EYES1 to 77453. That's E-Y-E-S number one to 77453 to get the GenuCell Sunspot Corrector free with your order. Don't miss out on this incredible offer. Order now and as a bonus, receive Chamonix Luxury Microdermabrasion also free. Rejuvenate and unclog pores for instantly radiant baby soft skin. Just text EYES1 to 77453. E-Y-E-S number one to 77453 to get the GenuCell Sunspot Corrector free with your order. You know, you look at France and you see how, what a death spiral looks like. Uh, it, you know, I've said before, I think Europe is already dead, but it's just going through the last kind of twitches uh, of its death. But I think what happens in success to a country when it reaches that pinnacle of success that this country reached, for instance, after World War II, is the next generation feels that it has no challenges, no opportunity for heroism, and therefore no meaning in its life. They want meaning, and so they exaggerate every clash. They exaggerate every little thing that happens, and they lose the ability to communicate with the opposite side. And that's what you saw with George Bush. 
inviting Dana Carvey and making fun of himself, allowing himself to be made fun of, the way that he spoke in a civilized way. Maureen Dowd wrote a piece about how they got along, even though she frustrated him with her attacks on him all the time, that he was constantly writing her affectionate letters, uh, saying he liked her. He didn't know why he liked her, but uh, he did, even though she was mean to him. When you lose that ability to communicate, what happens is the powerful have no way of identifying with the weak, and the weak have no way of respecting what the powerful have done in creating the world around them. And this is what happened in Rome. I fear that it's happening here. It's certainly happening in France. I mean, Paris is burning. It is burning because Emmanuel Macron, in this the elite obsession with climate change, raised the taxes on fuel without considering the fact that in Paris you may not need so much fuel, but out in the country where people are make their livings by driving around. You need that fuel. And people started rioting. And once they started rioting, of course, the radicals came out, the anarchists, the socialists, the communists, and started burning some of the uh, richer neighborhoods and declaring, why can't the rich share their wealth? I mean, that is an amazingly entitled idea that somehow the rich who earned this wealth, who built stuff, should give it to you. You know, that that's the conversation that happens in a death spiral. The conversation that happens is we don't care about you. We're raising taxes on you because we are fascinated with this climate change narrative. So that's what the powerful do to the weak. And then the weak say, why don't you give us your money? How come you don't give us stuff? You know, they don't understand the, the, the work that went into building things and they're not building stuff in the same way, and they're just demanding stuff be given to them. So it's, it's a, a dialogue between two ignorant parties, and they have no way of communicating except through violence. That's the only way they can uh, communicate. You know, there's a theory about the last, the midterm election, um, that everybody keeps saying these are wave elections. It's a wave because, so, you know, they look at the numbers and they count how many people lost, and they say it's a wave. And yet, Almost every election, midterm election now, is a wave election. And Selena Zito, who has been writing some very intelligent stuff about this, put forward a theory that what we're not seeing is a wave. We're seeing the public trying to correct the drift of the government and the government not listening. So in other words, as the government becomes too radical under Obama, they vote out all the Democrats. They leave Obama in there because they liked him and he was president, but they voted out Democrats across the country. So the, the Republicans started to think like, oh, well, they like us. So we should just, you know, play to our base. We should emphasize the most radical part of our agenda. So then, of course, Trump gets in and they vote all the Republicans out. And the Democrats are thinking, great, now we can go back to the Nancy Pelosi, you know, disaster. And all it is really is the public saying, no, 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 get back to the middle. I mean, what is the middle in this country? This country is a very tolerant, culturally very tolerant country. There's not, if you've ever been anywhere else on earth, you know that this is the least racist country in the world. This is a country where people in general do not want to bother you about who you're screwing. They don't want to bother you about the color of your skin. They just want you to show up, do your job, and go home. That's what they want. They want to leave you alone. But it's also a country where people want to be free and where they understand that free markets make the money that gets shared around in these you know, socialist and Democrat policies. But I repeat myself. So... So it is a country where the people still get how the government is supposed to work, but the government doesn't. The government just thinks, oh, they love us, so we're just going to go and play to our base, play to our, our funders, and go as radical as we possibly can. We lose the ability to have this conversation. This is one of the things about George Bush, the elder, that I always resented. You know, George Bush, because of 
Reagan's success in the Cold War, George Bush oversaw the dismantling of the Soviet Union. And he deserves a lot of praise for his kind of calm, quiet, uh, elder hand in dealing with that. So there wasn't, with the exception of Yugoslavia, which he shouldn't have left in place because it was just a, a mel- molded together country, with the exception of that, it, he really did a lot of it without violence. There, there should have been a lot more violence when an empire collapsed, but there wasn't because he shepherded it through. On the other hand, about 10 minutes before that wall fell down, George Bush and his uh, friends didn't know it was going to fall down. Reagan knew, but George Bush never knew. And so he really didn't have the commitment, I think, to organizing, to make ensuring that democracy, um, that democracy grew, had a place to grow. And that's why Putin has been allowed. And it's not enti- obviously it's not entirely Bush's fault, but Putin has been allowed to overtake it and become the tyrant and the czar that he has now become. The thing that I resented about both Bushes, and I liked both of these people. I think they're both admirable men. I think the elder George Bush was a, a genuinely great citizen of the United States of America. However, he made a speech when he was nominated for president after serving as Reagan's vice president that has been all, often quoted but has always bugged me. I'll, I'll play a little bit of it. This is cut number two. Prosperity with a purpose means taking your idealism and making it concrete by certain acts of goodness means helping a child from an unhappy home learn how to read. And I thank my wife, Barbara, for all her work in helping people to read and all her work for literacy in this country. It means teaching troubled children through your present that there's no such, that there is such a thing as reliable love. Some would say it's soft and insufficiently tough to care about these things. But where is it written that we must act if we do not care, as if we're not moved? Well, I am moved. I want a kinder and gentler nation. So it's said that Nancy Reagan uh, leaned over to Ron Reagan when she, Ronald Reagan when she heard that and said, kinder and gentler than whom? And of course, that was exactly it. He was indicating that uh, Ronald Reagan, with what Bush called his voodoo economics, had gone too far to the right and we needed to be kinder and gentler. And that implied that there was something unkind and ungentle than a philosophy, Reagan's philosophy, which had brought the economy back from absolute disaster. I mean, I I lived through the Carter age, the lines to get gasoline, the impossibility of getting work, the uh, inflation that came at the same time as unemployment came. They called it stagflation. It was a disaster. And all the left-wing articles that you hear, that you heard during the Obama administration, oh, the country's just become ungovernable, were in place. It was not Carter's fault because he was a Democrat, not Carter's fault that, you know, we were, our people were getting held hostage and when Reagan came in, it was, oh, how mean, what a warmonger, what a terrible guy. I mean, this is the thing. It was the same thing that we're, that's happening today. And so he said, this is going to be a kinder, gentler time. He was basically repudiating the conservatism that had brought the country back from the brink and had freed the millions and millions and millions of people in Eastern Europe. What's not kind? What's not compassionate about that? And his son W. did the same thing when he started talking about compassionate conservatism. The indica- the implication is that there's something not compassionate about conservatism. 
Now, here's the thing about this. It's always bothered me about the Bushes. Uh, William Buckley, I'm quoting this from memory, so I may not have it exactly right, but William F. Buckley said uh, about George Bush, he's conservative, but he's not a conservative, and the article makes all the difference, meaning he doesn't hold the conservative philosophy, even though he has conservative instincts. But here is the thing. I have to admit that though this annoys me tremendously, conservatism does have a problem with communicating it's compassion. It does have a problem. There are too many damn conservatives sitting around saying things like, well, you know, the blacks, the crime rate among blacks, or, you know, these people in the middle of the country who are taking Oxycontin and killing themselves. Let them die and decrease the surplus population. They do talk like that. Conservatives do talk like that. And how can you possibly continue to win elections when you talk like that? You know, Mia Love in Utah lost her election and gave a very bitter, very angry concession speech. She was the one, Mia Love, who did not ask for Trump's help because they were voting against Trump in that election. And Trump said, Mia Love gave me no love, and she lost. And this was before the, the uh, election had even been decided. It was very close. And as always, the close election goes to the Democrats because they steal them. And, and Mia Love came out, and she not only attacked Donald Trump, but she had this to say about minorities. This is cut number five. Above all, my experience in the last year has provided me a big reminder of who I am and what my purpose is. This election experience... And these comments shines a spotlight on the problems Washington politicians have with minorities and black Americans. It's transactional. It's not personal. You see, we feel like politicians claim they know what's best for us from a safe distance, yet they're never willing to take us home. You know, this is a really interesting point because any conservative, because conservatives, conservative Conservatism is a very male philosophy. And when I listen to Mia Love, what I hear is the voice as a married man for many, many decades. Well, I know when I'm hearing my wife say something that sounds irrational to me, but is right. This, this drives every husband crazy, right? You're listening to your wife and she's saying something and you know it doesn't make any sense and you know she's right. This is why women drive men crazy. This is why men die first. Is because they say these things. Women say, I, I'm listening to her and I'm saying, who has benefited under Trump, right? Black people, have, they're, they're working at, with historic numbers. Under Ronald Reagan, blacks, second only to single women, benefited from the Reagan boom more than any other group. And right now, you know, people, minorities, uh, Latinos, blacks, they are doing really well under the Trump economy. So I'm listening to her and I'm saying, what are you talking about? Why are you complaining about this? But she's right. And this is the thing that makes people like George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush play to the media and basically admit or, or indicate that conservatism is not compassionate. We don't go into the neighborhoods and explain ourselves and listen. We don't go in and listen, and we don't go in and say, here is my plan for doing this. You know, we forget, we forget that the founders of this country, James Madison said this, it said the object of government is the happiness of the people. We always forget that. Now, obviously, we want the least government possible. That was what the founders wanted to. Obviously, we want to be free, but we're not supposed to sit here while people are, you know, the, this latest piece of news that the uh, life expectancy has gone down in this country. 
has gone down in this country, despite the advances we've made in curing cancer. I shouldn't say we've made, the scientists have made in curing cancer and, and beating back the death rate from cancer. It's all from suicide. It's all from drug addiction. It's all from despair. It is from despair. If people are despairing, the leaders of the country have to go out and talk to them. Now, Trump did. Trump did go out and talk to them, but he is—he does have a problem communicating compassion and decency to the rest of the country. And that is why Mia Love was voted out of office. People voted against her because they wanted to, to speak up to Trump. They want the country somewhere in the center where it's tolerant, but it's not, uh, it's not socialist. That's basically what they said. They voted in uh, conservative Democrats who will now vote for socialist programs because they're wolves in sheep clothing, and they voted against what could they, you know, what's the, what's the problem with Trump, right? Everything is going so well. He's doing such a good job. It's obviously the way he is. The thing that people are voting against is the roughness, the kind of uncaring, the boorishness. That's what we're not communicating. I think we ought to listen to Mia Love, even though it drives us crazy. You know, it's like the, the old joke uh, among liberals, among conservatives about liberals, was they would say it works in practice, but does it work in theory? But that's a problem with conservatism, too. It doesn't matter how good your theories are if the people are suffering and if they don't hear, feel heard. Coming up tonight, don't miss our next episode of Daily Wire Backstage, the holiday edition. It may well be that I, who never wear any kind of costume, might put on a Santa Claus hat to go with my beard. If not, I may just wear my beard. Uh, Daily Wire God King Jeremy Boring, Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, and me will be talking holidays, politics, culture, and how the left <laughs> ruins every single one of them. So be sure to tune in. And as always, the lovely Elisha Krauss will be classing up the place and taking your questions as they roll in. Daily Wire subscribers get to ask questions, so make sure to subscribe today. And you also get another kingdom. It's only one episode left. You want to see these editions. They're so beautiful. Come on over and subscribe to dailywire.com. The star of Another Kingdom, Michael Knowles, will be with us in a moment. But first, I got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. Come over to dailywire.com and subscribe. It's a lousy 10 bucks a month, a lousy 100 bucks for the year. You get the Leftist Tears Tumblr. And more importantly, we get your money. All right, we are back. You know, Michael Knowles. I've been gone so you long. You have been so long, I forgot who you were. I grew a beard. I, I can't believe how long I, I've been I gone. I said, I'm not shaving till that boy is safely home. That's, <laughs> That's right. my protest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I'm really glad we're doing the backstage thing because over the weekend, Cassie Dillon was on Twitter and somebody attacked her on Twitter and said she has sold her, her soul for the cocktail conservatism of Ben Shapiro. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I sold my soul to Ben. I didn't get any cocktails. I didn't, where's the cocktail? <laughs> I yeah. Where are the cocktails? I have to bring my own cocktails when I come here <laughs> right. at 9 in the morning. I know. All right. I got to renegotiate my contract. On the backstage show, we get the cocktail. <laughs> so, uh, Another Kingdom's coming to an end already. I know. This, I know, this is, is, this is pretty sad. I know. This is, I mean, this is the greatest Christmas gift that anybody can give <laughs> to one another is you, you'll be able to watch the whole thing. It'll all be out by Christmas. It'll all be out by Christmas. We, we actually planned it right this time. We kind of got right. a little messed up last, last time. But there's Still a third, a third season. I hope. I hope we'll do the third it, season. Well, I mean, from the numbers, it looks like we will. It's, it looks. It's, it's been, been really well. You, it's been really popular. You are now the most famous actor in California who doesn't have a job. I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm certainly. I'm certainly the most famous conservative actor 
<laughs> other than Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yes. But I'm also the only one who's occasionally employed. So I guess that's it. That <laughs> you and Clint, that's it. Yeah. That's the entire list. That's right. So, I, I and you know, it makes sense, yeah. by the way, because Clint talked to an empty chair and I wrote an empty book. <laughs> Maybe this is the secret. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's the emptiness. It's the emptiness of conservatism. That we're <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk. We, you're our cultural correspondent. Yes. So I wanted to talk about the war on Christmas because... How goes the war on Christmas? You know, I, I've got, first of all, yeah. we should correct the Some conservatives, even conservatives, deny the war on Christmas. This is amazing to me. It's amazing. It's amazing, yeah. Do you know the majority, of, the majority of Americans deny the war on Christmas? The majority of Republicans deny the war on Christmas. Really? There is a war on Christmas. It's gaslighting. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it it's is gaslighting. gaslighting. It obviously exists. Did, did you ever see the movie Mars Attacks? Oh, one of the great movies. Isn't that a great where they run around going, we come in peace? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's no, yeah. war <laughs> no war on Christmas. There's no war on Christmas. Happy holiday. Happy holiday. <laughs> well, they, in, in Boston in 2005, yeah. they officially renamed the Christmas tree the holiday tree. Did, they did. They did. It became the official Boston Common yeah. Holiday Tree. Uh, the Obamas, when they were in yeah. the White House, removed the word Christmas from the Christmas card. No, they didn't. Yes, they did. Did You can look at all of the White House Christmas cards. Virtually all of them say, Merry Christmas, Holly here, all this. For some reason, I I got a Christmas card under W, but I haven't gotten one since. I don't know why. What? Even (laughs) under this guy? (laughs) I don't know. That's not. Did he send you a Christmas card? I I haven't gotten mine either, actually. (laughs) And he has my address. You're on Fox and Friends. Uh, You may be. I have breakfast with him (laughs) at least once a week. Yeah. (laughs) So So the Obamas remove... Christmas, what I've heard about the White House Christmas card is that it is the biggest, gaudiest, most Christmassy (laughs) Christmas card. This is according to uh, Rep. Jim Cooper, Democrat. He said it's the gaudiest Christmas card he's ever seen. He's complaining. He's complaining about probably 18 inches high. It says Merry Christmas. So that's a great thing. (laughs) You'll remember Barack Obama tried to force nuns to pay for abortions. Yes. It was a long legal battle. Oh, they don't like that? They they apparently don't like this. (laughs) Donald Trump invited a group of nuns in full habit to sing at the lighting of the White House Christmas tree. I mean, this is what you got to love about Trump. You know, there's, there are things about Trump that drive me insane because yep. he's doing such a good job, but he steps on his own feet. But this is the stuff I love about him. He understands the culture war. He really does. That's right. He yeah. is. I mean, he is the culture war. Yeah, he he's is say, the culture war. Yeah. He's afraid of the storm. I am the storm. <laughs> I am. And, yeah. So he brings the nuns. Bear, yeah. I mean, he, I, I think he must have called up his religious advisor and said, I need the most Catholic. <laughs> I want the most, cri- like, if they can have a glowing sign on their head. So they've got this. And then you see it most clearly by by the way, yeah. at Starbucks. Yeah, because everybody always complains about those cups. Yes. Starbucks. So what happened? You can trace them. You yeah. can say, I think we have the pictures. You can see from the beginning of Starbucks yeah. to the present, yeah. we've got, you know, snowflakes and right. holly and all this nice stuff. Uh, in, in 2015, it became just a red cup. Became a red, yeah. just a nothing on it. 2016, it was worse. It was a green cup with this mosaic of random people and there was no <laughs> sense of the Christmas season at all. Then the next year, Donald Trump is already elected. You get red and white again, a little snowflake, some presents, a little hand-holding. 2018, I've got holly, I've got twinkling stars. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I went into Starbucks. <laughs> I on, want the magi. Oh, it was I mean, great. Next year, like a little crash. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just kicked in the door on November 1st. I was, I was Christmas music already playing. It's yes. Christmas blends of coffee. And, and so... Obviously, the war on Christmas in America, this goes back very far. It goes back to the Puritans. Right. It goes back. The Puritans outlawed Christmas. Oh, they that's wanted people right. to work Puri- on Christmas. I forgot about that. The Puritans hated Christmas. Oh, they hated it. This has a long-standing history. Yeah. Uh, but really, in the 21st century, that's when it kicks in. Walmart yeah. is taking Christmas out of their marketing. Target, same thing. Best Buy, same thing. 
uh, Philadelphia's Christmas Village ditched the word Christmas. Really? So it really had been getting to a fever pitch. Yeah, yeah. Donald Trump comes in, and he said it explicitly this year at the tree lighting, too. Merry Christmas. Did you hear me? Merry <laughs> Christmas. Yes. He said it again. But because people can't ever be happy, they can't simply be content with what we've got, I have now gotten my ire up because yeah. of the war on Advent. <laughs> the war on Advent. I, I, I have to tell you, I have I have a little bit of war on Advent in me because I'm, I'm an Episcopalian and mm-hmm. very, and I go to a very Catholic Episcopalian church. So yes. Yeah, I mean, the liturgy there must be the same as the liturgy at, at your. Oh, church. I assume it's much more Catholic <laughs> at the Episcopalian. Uh, it's, it's acoustic guitars. It is. And, I mean, we still yeah. have the these and those. We use the old uh, the old liturgy and everything like this, but. Catholics and Episcopalians are very grumpy about Advent. I mean, to me, it's the Christmas season, right? We start singing Christmas carols. They will not sing a Christmas carol and an Advent ceremony. And I'm like, give me, give me some. You know, it's kind of like, no, no, no. This is Christianity. No joy. No right? joy. No. <laughs> you, what do you, you know that rejoice evermore? <laughs> not an Advent. It's like, oh. you, you must eat your dessert before dinner. Don't you? Don't you say, someone serves you a beautiful <laughs> salad and steak. Yeah, you say, chocolate the, pudding, please. Bring me the pudding. Bring me the pudding. That's right. But it is, you know, it's so I here's the I mean, this is the thing with Trump conservatives who are upset. Oh, he tweets. Oh, he doesn't say this right. He doesn't know what the Supreme Court does. Okay, fine. (laughs) Fine. I get it. Deal with that tomorrow. It is a good thing. (laughs) That Christmas is winning the war on Christmas. There's no question about this. Mm-hmm. It is it is important. Yes. And now and now the war on now tomorrow, you know, yeah. we'll we'll work on the war on Advent. So what's the war on Advent? The war on Advent is that Advent is a penitential season. So Advent comes before Christmas. We want to rush everything. Starbucks is playing Christmas music on November first. Yeah. And but it's a penitential season where you explore the mysteries of death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And you explore these mysteries That's because yeah, I know. Isn't this exciting? <laughs> yeah. And no, and you but you need to understand yeah. those mysteries. Because then you can celebrate Christmas at the end. Otherwise, Christmas just becomes this kind of uh, superficial, shallow celebration, <laughs> and you wonder why you're happy. Why? <laughs> when does Santa Claus drink Coke? That's why I this was, the well, Santa Claus drinks the Coca-Cola. <laughs> it's, it's, it's five <laughs> mysteries, really. Death, judgment, yeah, yeah. heaven, and hell. And how Santa eats all of those cookies <laughs> yeah, while is, guzzling that down the big, Coca-Cola that in his sleigh. Mystery. That's right. Now, you know, I, 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 sort, I sort of have sympathy for this because, I, do, you know, they come out, if, for those of you who don't go to these liturgies, they, they come out and they walk counterclockwise yeah. to talk so you know it's about repentance and penitential uh, uh, misery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just flogging yourself the with is, it. Yeah. The thing is, Christmas is supposed to be 12 days long. That's right. So, so if you celebrated 12 days of Christmas, yes. I could see why you would have 24 days of, ad, of penitential Advent. But in America, Christmas is this one day, and then you're like Faye Dunaway after the Oscars. Remember that famous picture oh, of yes. her sitting just, in just absolute desolation? You know? It is true. People rip down their Christmas tree on Christmas uh, it's Day. True, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's ridiculous. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's sort of, uh, when people do that, which is the mode, uh, MO of the society right now, they're spoiling their appetite. They're, spo- they're about to go to a great dinner, yeah. and they're eating a bunch of trash before the dinner. They're eating like eating McDonald's or something. <laughs> you've got to you've got to save up your appetite, but literally too. I mean, in a penitential season, you're not yeah. supposed to gorge yourself too much. And then on Christmas, you get to celebrate for 12 days. And then and this is a really beautiful thing because now we're just content. On December 25th, we end the war on Christmas. We can be fighting that war for another <laughs> dozen days. What we is, can have our lefties what is so the point, angry. What is the point of salvation and joy if you get to destroy the opposition? That's right. <laughs> there are also people. There are also people who complain that Christmas is essentially a pagan holiday. Yeah. And my my feeling about that is if if Christianity came in and deified all the good things of the pagans, that's. 
That's a huge win. Right? That is yeah, a really yeah. that is a big win for a couple of reasons. One, if we baptize pagan things, that makes the pagan things better. Exactly. But yeah. also because our you know our civilization comes from Athens and Jerusalem. Yep. We have classical yep. roots, of course, and we take those things and we don't just remain mired in paganism. But we do we do have a through line and a continuity in our culture, and it gets better and better. Until it gets worse. <laughs> until, until it stops. Well, until they abandon the Christianity. I mean, that, that is the thing. A lot of people, you know, I, especially around here where there's a lot of uh, non-Catholics. That's they, true. They pick on you. But the Catholic Church was a little uh, kind of Tiffany egg that held the classical culture inside it. All those monks reading, you know, Aristotle. Yeah, of course. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I'm, that's why I'm going back. I'm always looking for Advent reads. Yeah. I'm reading St. Athanasius right now. St. Athanasius. And it's I, really, I may have read that, actually. Yeah. He, he has a piece on the incarnation. Yeah. And there are so many good. I mean, I really wish people would dig into this. Because, now, you know, we talk about how great Santa Claus is, but if you dig into the classical stories you remember, Santa Claus punched a heretic I, I in know. the face. <laughs> the heretic, er there's so it's much true. there. It's a true story. It's true. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Yeah. All right, what are you talking about? Today, I will be exploring first the war on Advent. I'll yeah. be going into it a little bit more. And then uh, I will be talking about uh, George Bush and the, the most important thing. I'm ignoring Mueller. I'm done yeah. with Bob Mueller. Yeah. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is the... I mean, the woman is a dummy. <laughs> well, what's amazing <laughs> yeah. is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the riots in Paris, yeah. flipping cars, killing people. Uh, do you know what they have in common? What's that? It's all about global warming. That's we'll true. explain the global warming right. roots right. in our show. Thank you. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. back. <laughs> Merry, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry, <laughs> happy Advent. <laughs> <laughs> Penitential Advent. All right, our crappy culture. So I have to talk about this story about uh, Jeffrey Epstein, the sex-crazed billionaire who had that uh, um, airplane called the Lolita Express where underage girls uh, would service uh, powerful men and where the records show that Bill Clinton uh, flew on the plane, Lolita, Lolita, of course, being the underage girl from the Nabokov novel. Uh, and Bill Clinton flew in it, I think, 26 times <laughs> on the course of like a couple of weeks. There is a story now out in the Miami Herald about how uh, Epstein was arrested and accused with basically uh, running underage prostitutes. But there was a story about how uh, that case was buried by the guy, Alexander Acosta, who is now uh, the labor secretary, I think, in the, is he the Department of Labor? I think he's the Department of Labor in the Bush administration. Uh, I, I want to just play this piece of this, this girl, Virginia Roberts, was 15. She was working at Mar-a-Lago. She was working at the Trump Hotel when she was recruited by a woman that uh, Epstein used and brought in uh, to uh, become basically uh, his hooker and then spread around uh, to other men. Thrown into a world that you don't understand, and you don't know how to, you're screaming on the inside, and you don't know how to let it come out. And you just become this numb figure who refuses to feel and refuses to speak and refuses, all you do is obey. That's it. And eventually it led to, well, now we're going to experiment and we're going to try you with another guy and see how you go. So they sent me to an island with a professor and, and I basically had to do what I did for Jeffrey for him. So it's very private. It's the perfect world for a billionaire getting away with what he was doing. He could hold big parties there and, and have huge orgies there and nobody would have any idea what was going on because it was so quiet and so protected. And it started with one and then it trickled into two and then so on and so forth. And you know, before you know it, I'm 
being lent out to politicians and to academics and to people that you, royalty. Uh, she accuses Alan Dershowitz of being one of the men, uh, he says, uh, he denies that. In 2007, the FBI had prepared a 53-page federal indictment charging Epstein with sex crimes that could have put him in federal prison for life. This is from the Miami Herald. But then, then Miami U.S. Attorney Alexander Acosta, who is now the Secretary of Labor in the, in the Trump administration, uh, signed off on a non-prosecution agreement. This, these charges could have put Epstein in prison for life. But this was negotiated, signed, and sealed so that no one would know the full scope of Epstein's crimes, though he did have to sign on as a sex offender. The indictment was shelved, never to be seen again. Here's what I want to talk about for just a second about our crappy culture, is that sexual morality has now become a political bludgeon. And in being a political bludgeon, of course, it only applies to Republicans. It only applies to one side or to Democrats who are now out of power. So Bill Clinton is now getting the full brunt of the charges that he was protected from for 30 years. But when Roy Moore, remember, was accused of having touched the bra of an underage girl 30 years ago, we were lectured continually about how evil it would be for Republicans to vote for Roy Moore to keep the, the majority that we had in the Senate. We were told, oh my God, what, kind, what has happened to the Republican Party that it would vote for a man of this kind? And I, what I said was we should vote for him and then censure him, you know, vote, make sure we keep the majority and then throw him out and, and replace him. When Bob Menendez in New Jersey was running, a guy who has been very, very credibly charged with going after underage prostitutes and dealing in vast corruption, suddenly nothing. We have heard nothing about the corruption of the Democrat Party. We have heard nothing about the cynicism of the newspaper that said, you know, just bite your tongue and vote for Menendez. I mean, it all it's all on one side. So what happens eventually? You have one side, the left, who the far left has absolutely no loyalty to the Constitution. They hate the First Amendment. They hate the Second Amendment. They want to ban all kinds of speech. They want to ban all kinds of guns. They want they are not friends of the Constitution. When they are accused of sexual malfeasance, nothing. Crickets. The other side, with all our flaws on the right, and we have plenty of flaws, with all our flaws, we are fighting for the founding of this country, the founding principles, to keep the founding principles of this country in place. If we pinch some girl, or if we did something wrong, or if in the, this case of Jeffrey Epstein did something totally wrong, they come after us full force, right? They come after us full force. The effect of that is what? It means that those of us who are defending the Constitution have to choose between our sexual morality and the Constitution. We have to say like, hey, you know what? I want the I want the majority. We have to say what the Democrats say. I want the majority in Congress. Vote for Roy Moore and then throw him out later. You know, get rid of, forget about the sexual, uh, the question of sexual morality. That way, chaos lies, right? I mean, that way, there's at no point is there anyone who simply steps up and says, hey, how should we be behaving in the sack? What are the rules in a world of birth control, in a world of liberated women? What are the rules of sexuality? How are we supposed to treat each other? And how are we supposed to uh, know when something has gone wrong? I think this conversation has got to be taken out of politics. I think we have got to say, all right, we get it. All the politicians are bad guys. But what do we condemn? What is what is a basis for throwing people out of office? What is a basis for getting fired? What is when do we believe 
women and when do we not? We have to have those conversations, but we can't have them in the context of losing power if they only applies to one side. This is yet another reason why our corrupt and one-sided press is so damaging to the country because we can't have a conversation about cultural mores without dealing in politics. And when you're dealing in politics, you're fighting for power and nobody's going to give up power in the name of morality. It's just not going to happen. All right. We will be back. We'll be back tonight on the Daily Wire backstage and we'll be drinking heavily and smoking excellent, excellent cigars and talking about all the things you want to hear about. And I personally, I, on my little lonesome, will be back tomorrow. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angulo and Jacob Jackson. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018. Hi, I'm Michael Knowles, host of The Michael Knowles Show, and today we will be talking about the war on Christmas. Spoiler alert, Christmas is finally winning. We'll be talking about what conservatives, irreligious and religious alike, can learn from Advent and the real war on Advent, and also the riots in Paris. Crazy, insane riots, and they're being caused by global warming alarmist politicians. Go to dailywire.com. You can also find us on iTunes. See you there.